Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to Say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really glad to have Brian Little on the show. Dr. Little is an internationally acclaimed scholar and speaker in the field of personality and motivational psychology. Professor Little is currently at Cambridge University, where he is fellow of the Wellbeing Institute and director of the Social Ecology Research Group in the Department of Psychology. He is also affiliated with the Cambridge Judge Business School and the Psychometric Center at Cambridge. His latest book is Me, Myself, and I. No, just kidding. His latest book is Me. <laughs> His latest book is Me, Myself, and Us, The Science of Personality and the Art of Well-Being. Brian has been described as deeply informative, outrageously funny, and, quote, a cross between Robin Williams and Einstein. <laughs> that, what an awesome way to be described and very accurate, in my opinion. Thank you, Brian, for being on the show. I'm delighted. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. What a wonderful introduction. Even though I totally butchered it. <laughs> <laughs> Me, myself, and I, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally not what your book is about. <laughs> no, the us actually matters, doesn't it? It, that, it all comes together in that brilliant last paragraph of your book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's the one paragraph that I'd like people to read, actually. They can skip the rest of the book. Yeah, well, they don't even need to buy it. Just go into the bookstore and read that last paragraph. Well, this, you know, this us part is is a kind of a common theme through this book is that it's not just a personality is not just something that comes from within. You know, context matters, and also in creativity, I really liked how you talked about. You know, what about all those people that like supported? You know, those quote creative geniuses. You know, the control group. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. The mute inglorious folks who were simply on the comparison group against which uh, McKinnon's creative individuals seem to be so 
heroic. And that's something I think has been given relatively short shrift uh, in the literature. And um, I'm very happy you picked up on that because to me, that's a central issue. And I think what that does for those of us who study creativity is it deflects our attention away from the creative person to the creative project. And we often differentiate between the person, the process, and so on. These are very frequently invoked concepts in creativity research. But the creative project itself is really interesting because I think that it is a sustainable pursuit of these core projects that matter in our lives. And the sustainability comes from motivation of the individual who's the creative one. But it also needs the touch of the less heroic one who uh, tells the creative individual when things aren't going too well or deals with the bank or deals with the details of the administrative stuff that I'm thinking of the creative architect study. They hate details. They hate that kind of stuff. But their creative project would flounder if they did not have those support cast members around. Yeah, you're referring to the famous IPAR study. And I didn't know that your office was down the hall from McKinnon's, who was the director of those of the study. I didn't know that you you knew him. That's amazing. Yes, I was his assistant for a, a short while. Wait, on the IPAR studies? Yeah, I was a, a teaching assistant for his course that he gave on uh, creativity and the dynamics of behavior. Did you meet Frank Barron as well? Very little. We crossed paths, but I had more contact with uh, Don McKinnon. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what legends? <laughs> well, you're a legend too. <laughs> it was an ex- it was a really exciting time to be there. But Scott, it was 1964. And that was when the oh, yes, student rebellion, well. the student, the free speech movement started. And there was a, this creative tension, as it were, between being so involved with what was happening on campus, on the one hand, and dealing with the academic side of things on the other. And McKinnon was quite a conservative fellow. And his course on the unconscious was fascinating because... I wasn't sure that he was really processing what creativity was being unfurled on the campus in those days. Uh, so as, as his teaching assistant, I had all sorts of interesting discussions with the students about just what is happening on campus and how it challenges the orthodoxy and how it tries to create a, a new regime in a conservative institution. Could your paths ever cross with Abraham Maslow? No, I was very much a George Kelly student. And George Kelly visited Stanford when I was at Berkeley, and I went down to take his course. And he invited me to come to Brandeis the next summer and to meet with him and Maslow, with whom he had some agreement, but not that much, really. And that's a fun thing to get into is where did Kelly differ from Maslow? I'd like to have that discussion. Well, the whole notion of whether there's a self in you, and this is Rogerian as well, a whole self waiting to be discovered. George Kelly would have none of that. There's no inner you waiting to come out. You enact the you. You pursue it through the constructs you create to anticipate the future. And um, so I was very excited to go to Brandeis that summer. I happened to be, um, I'd left uh, Berkeley to go to Oxford, and I was all set to go back to Brandeis, and George Kelly died in the interim. And it really hit me, because that would have been a wonderful opportunity to see if we could affect any rapprochement 
between the Kellyan view and the Maslowian view. Unbelievable. That would have been just such a legendary meeting yep. of three legends. So, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with this idea of the self is an illusion. And, you know, there's modern neuroscience and Bruce Hood, you know, talks about how the self is yeah. an illusion. And, you know, there is a biogenic self, as you talk about in, in the book. Yes. There Thanks is. for using that term. It encapsulates 40 other terms we have to use, like neuroendocrinology and yeah. so on. So biogenic works for me, and I'm delighted you used it. Thank you. I like it. I like all the little like words you use. like. You you coin like you like Shakespeare of the. I'm going to give you a, a new thing. You know, like Einstein and uh, and Robin Williams. I'll be like, Me. bless your heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So no, I like that. So there is something that it means to be you, DNA wise. I mean, you would be yes. someone. You would literally be someone else. Yes. If I had you know 100 yes. percent of your genes, well, maybe not. Not maybe not because two identical twins who have 100% of the same genes, they're still not the same person, right? That's right. And that's because of the imposition of what I call the other two natures, the sociogenic self, which is broadly used to refer to the impact of the environment and the cultural codes and norms that you are socialized into. And then what I regard as the emergent third nature, which is that which is driven by our aspirations, our goals, and particularly our personal projects. And they are what give meaning to us. And the self is often uh, created through those projects. And that's where I think that I would, I'm a little skeptical when I see the advertisements for the genetic whole genome analyses that you can do commercially now. I'd love to do one. In fact, I left a subtle hint with my kids that I'd love one for Father's Day. But when they advertise it as get to know the real you, well, not really in the sense of who am I really? Well, you're somebody that can detect whether you've eaten artichokes or, or, or whatever it is the night before <laughs> because you have that particular gene. And I think the real concept of self comes through how you identify with and explore your values and enact your values through the projects that you take on during your life at different stages of the life cycle. Yeah, you use the phrase new self. I like that phrase. Like we can create new selves that we yes. never had before, yes. engagement in new projects. Yes. Um, so, you know, there is this big theme in this book of the flexibility of personality. And yeah. I really like the idea of what the self is, is this bundle of values and uh, goals and these kinds of things versus what we focus on in education, like standardized test performance and IQ and intelligence. And even, you, you don't, I notice you don't equate the big five personality traits with who you are. But that's interesting because the whole introvert revolution, there seems to be one particular dimension of the big five where a whole bunch of people have made that a huge part of their identity. Absolutely fascinating phenomenon. And I get it in a lot of ways as a biogenic introvert myself. Like <laughs> I appreciate wanting to own who you are, but doesn't it also lead to potential inflexibility? Oh boy, have you got seven hours? <laughs> <laughs> now, I thought you would describe yourself uh, in a wonderful piece you wrote as a, as a neurotic extrovert. So that gets into some real, and now this is not an interview about you, but if we were back in Philadelphia I, and had a beer in front of us, I'd be talking to you about whether you are a biogenic introvert or more a, a biogenic extrovert. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, 
these things are tricky. Like introversion has become something beyond, you know, when people say I'm an introvert and that's their identity, they're not yeah. referring to the technical definition of the big five. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I really have to uh, tell you about something. I, for now 40 years, I've been lecturing on the introversion extroversion dimension to large audiences in, in a whole bunch of different fields, teachers, physicians, corporate groups, and so on. And this really began in the 70s. And it was before the big five had really been articulated, of course, as you know. And the dominant model of extroversion was Isenkian. Uh, I had great discussions at Oxford with, with Jeffrey Gray, not the Jeremy Gray, who you've worked with. Oh, yeah. And Jeffrey Gray wrote the best book ever on consciousness, by the way, in The Hard Problem, Consciousness. Yeah, um, he was a truly brilliant scholar. And I used to, after my talks on how extroverts and introverts differ in terms of the impact they have on their success, and that introverts are, tend to do better in school, they are more careful, they have a tendency to uh, do detail work better than extroverts. So I would draw the picture of them as being estimable creatures. And people come up and say, I never thought of myself that way. It's really amazing that there's something about us that, that you think is admirable. And I say, of course there is. And so that became, I guess, a, in a way, my shtick when I was talking to groups over the years. And then many, many, many years later, Susan Cain uh, contacted me writing a book about this. And, you know, we chatted a lot about it. And she drew on some of my research in her book. And now it has become a, a social movement. And as we both know, because we're affiliated with the, the quiet group, that it has taken on a, a considerably lively force in social life. However, that said, and this goes right back to your initial question about identity, I'm seeing pushback. And the pushback's coming from the extroverts <laughs> who are yeah. saying, hey, enough about these one sensitive, thoughtful. Elaine Aaron would have some concerns about this, but that depiction of introversion, yes. because they're, they're not totally overlapping. Right. But um, there is this um, tendency for them to be pushing back. That isn't as much of a concern as it is for me that some introverts are simply seeing them as themselves as nothing but introverts. They're ignoring the other four of big five dimensions. And once you start going through the big five to glom onto one identity associated with one pole of the big five, as you point out, and you're, you're absolutely right. First of all, it's, it's intriguing why that has happened. It's a phenomenon. But, yeah, it really is. And the, the second thing is that it, I think it is dangerous because it decreases our degrees of freedom to enact our lives and craft our lives in a way that will redound to our values and to the things that really matter to us. And it can also serve as a pretext for not engaging with the world. And so if you, as we increase the degrees of freedom, and it's a phrase I like to use a lot when I'm discussing personality, by recognizing the strengths of introverts, the quiet strengths of introverts, as Susan so beautifully portrayed in her book, I worry that we not say that's all you are. For example, you may say, I don't want to go to the party. And now I am encouraged to speak up and say, hey, I'm okay. I just would rather curl up with a nice book tonight. 
That's great. But there's some recent research. I don't know whether you're familiar with this out of John Zelensky's lab at Carleton. Oh, yeah. He's doing that has shown that introverts who it goes to Dan Gobert's work on being able to anticipate your future happiness. When introverts are asked to imagine what it would be like to go to a social event, they rate it as, as quite low. But when they actually go and experience it, they rate it much higher. And so acting extrovert extrovertedly for an introvert may actually have a salutary effect upon their well-being. If they identified strongly as an introvert and only assimilated that notion of this is who I am instead of accommodating to the possibilities of getting engaged, then I think they shortchanged themselves. No, absolutely. There's so many things to unpack there. But I think a big, you know, the question about like, what am I? When I said I was a neurotic extrovert and I wrote that article, I yeah. was that was my attempt to like gently introduce the idea of multidimensionality to the yeah. public in a yes. in, in my own, you know, quirky fashion. So yeah. that was like an exercise as a professor to people about how look on both these independent they're independent dimensions. But you know, the, the yeah. thing that's tricky is that like when mm-hmm. I and I you know, I, I think Susan's great a great person and I really yes. really like her and her heart's in a great place and she they're, they're doing a lot to help people. So, yep. but I feel like, you know, when I put my scientist hat on, yep. um, I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm an extrovert on the big five because when it comes to positive emotions, I have lots of positive emotions. Yep. And the other dimension is assertiveness. And, you know, I, you know, love asserting my, my wants and needs. But then I say, I look at, I read Susan Cain's books and I say, yep. I'm an introvert. <laughs> so it creates... Okay. Yeah, I'm a, that, I'm a Susan Cain introvert and a big five extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have the same concern. And I, that, let me let me do you um, know what I mean. So, you know, what yeah, I, mean? I do completely. I have erred, I think, on the side of invoking rather too much of, of the Isenkian model of neocortical arousal and so on. I find that it's a model that works for certain areas, such as um, pharmacological effects, uh, stimulant drugs uh, and, and uh, sedative drugs and their impact on performance and so on. I find it's more helpful to look at that from a, uh, an arousal point of view than from a dopaminergic system engagement a point of view. Which and, is how like so five researchers are strictly looking at it now is dopamine. They are, yeah. And th- th- I think that's fine. But there's also a domain of performance that I think aligns better with the modified um, Isenkian view. And when I said over the many, many decades, I am an introvert, I'm referring to neocortical arousal because I can't have caffeine after four o'clock at night and expect to sleep. When I have a lot of people talking to me, let's say halfway through a lecture, and you've got a 10 minute break, I get so over aroused. And it's not autonomic arousal. It's neocortical arousal that I, I'm flooding. I can't really process information. But then that can kick into autonomic arousal as well. And it's that biogenic introversion that I think can lead people like us. Both of us are highly agreeable, right? Yeah. yeah. So we, when we're on with our students, we love them to bits. But I, and I don't know about you, but I overload with that, and I need to get away and an escape at the break if I'm going to give a lucid lecture when I come back. If the lecture's over and I don't need to give a lecture, I don't need to perform at all, then I'm happy to have high fives and, and a lot of excitement with my students. 
Well, this gets to the essence of the introverts and extroverts dimensions, because big five researchers would listen to this conversation right now, and they'd say, you're just describing neuroticism. Like, you're just describing, like, the neocortical arousal, like, arousal stimulation. That's within the neuroticism domain. And it doesn't feel quite, you know, when I read these descriptions, you know, Susan is describing a phenotype that might actually be a blend of things, but it's still in itself a phenotype that a large swath of people are identified. Even if it is a blend of big five traits, it's still a particular blend that a whole bunch of people are resonating with, including me. Yeah. Yeah. Which which creates, you know, contract when I, because I like, you know, you call yourself a passionate introvert. So passion Mm -hmm. is like one of the facets of of extroversion on the big five, enthusiasm. Yes. You know? Scott, here is where we need to bring in what I call idiogenic nature, the part of human nature that derives from our core projects in our lives. And irrespective of my neocortical arousability, I have a passionate project, and that is to excite my students. And that means that I have to act out of character. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if you give a highly introverted, circumspect lecture at eight in the morning, you're going to lose them. And so I've learned over the years to, as it were, act out of character. But, and now it's so wonderful to talk to somebody who really understands the psychophysiology of this. When I say that, I'm talking about acting away from my natural biogenic orientation. It may be linked to, and indeed I'm sure there is some link with the dopaminergic system. And I'm more than willing to concede that. And I'm a big fan of. Colin DeYoung's and his colleagues' aspects model. And you've been involved in that work as well. He's one of my closest collaborators. Yeah. And uh, Colin is working with me. Incidentally, we're working right now on, on, he's looking at the big five traits and personal projects in a. No way. Yeah. Which is so exciting. I can't wait to see what comes out of that. And that's uh, funded by the Templeton Foundation. Wonderful. Wonderful. So we're getting these links finally building up so that we can create an integrated picture of the person, Scott. I love this idea, the integrated picture of the person. And so let's talk about authenticity for a second. I mean, we know that as a explanatory variable, authenticity is a predictor of well-being. And you did wrote this brilliant paper on personal projects in 1998, where you distinguish between happiness and meaning. And that's with Ian McGregor. Ian McGregor. And I, yeah. in the book, I noticed you didn't get into the nitty-gritty details of that study, but in your book you didn't. But I want to discuss this paper because I blew my mind. So you yeah. found that integrity – to me, integrity is an important part of authenticity, right? Yes. So and some people use the phrases synonymously. Integrity in your projects, your personal projects, was correlated with meaning but not happiness. Yes. However, and this is what blew my mind, acting out of character, in a sense, was correlated with happiness. <laughs> but not meaning. We're complex little creatures, Scott, aren't we? Sure are. (laughs) And that's part of the delight of studying human personality. I've had some development in my ideas about authenticity recently. Our mutual friend, Adam Grant, has written a recent, I won't call it a screed, but a a recent article on um, how perhaps we're overemphasizing authenticity. It's an inverted U-shaped curve, at least. He invoked that in there, but basically he's making an argument very similar to other arguments that have been proffered in recent years that authenticity may be may have a limiting influence upon us. And I broached that topic, but I'm going to do it more in a new book I have coming out 
in the next few months, which is a TED book. And there's a chapter on authenticity in it. And here, here's my most recent thinking on it, that I think that there are three kinds of authenticity. Now, I like to use the word fidelity. You can show fidelity to your biogenic nature. That is, you can do what feels right. And this is the old hedonic notion of I am what I really want and, and need. The deep me is my biogenic me in our terms. Another way you can show fidelity and show authenticity and the sense of fidelity is to be authentic to your cultural norms. And you are a member of a particular ethnic group, or you are a student of a particular school, or you are from a neighborhood in a city. And that is me. That's a core me. You, you prick me and I bleed Philly or Yale in your, or your ethnicity. And that I resonate is, with Philly a lot more than Yale. <laughs> trust, trust me. <laughs> well, you see, we've learned something already. And that has a claim on us. And sometimes in some cultures, it has an incredible claim on us. So that I studied it at, um, uh, at Berkeley also with Ted Sarman, the role theorist, who used to let us know just how vital cultural scripts were. Literally, individuals can die from subscribing to a social role. If they are shamed, it may shut down their psychophysiology. Now, the skeptic in me would want to see more evidence on that. The claim is a fair one, that our culture can give us the signature of who we are in a way that can be really quite indelible. That's the old biogenic, sociogenic, the old nature-nurture dialectic playing out If when we discuss these two. To me, and now we're going to get to integrity, the idiogenic self, the third nature, as a source of um, fidelity and a source of authenticity, is the one that I think is really most important because it is the self that I am, not because of my biology or my cultural entrainment, but the self I am because of what I have chosen to be and the projects to which I commit in my life. You sound very Sartre-esque here for a second. <laughs> Le projet. <laughs> well, this is like really an interesting conversation because, you know, the existential philosophers, you know, really believe we, we, he would, he would love what you just said, you know, yes. like, but, you know, Maslow, you know, would disagree. A lot of the humanistic psychologists were like, no, they're actually, they got it wrong, the existential philosophers. We actually, there is an essence to who we are that is influenced by our genes and that we can grow our potentialities, but we, you know, don't completely create our potentialities. I would agree with that. And I agree with both perspectives. I don't, I don't think they're incompatible. Uh, there you um, go. We do have a biogenic nature. And like you as an agreeable person, I want everybody to be happy together, right? This, is, <laughs> this is, has been one of the, the common themes in my work is, you know, can't can we actually get the biogenetically oriented individuals and the social constructivists together? Yeah, and, and I, love we, I love integration. I love integration. Well, I've written a couple of articles which have been distinguished by the lack of citations to them. <laughs> about the need for integration in personality psychology. I love it. But I think that it's entirely possible, unlike an existentialist or a Sartreum, I think it's entirely possible to give credence to the biogenic aspects of our nature and the sociogenic 
and yet still have degrees of freedom left. But those degrees of freedom to enact the projects that matter to us, projects like take care of my mom because her cognitive decline is getting alarming, or the project of be there for my daughter during this trying time, or the project is enjoy myself with Dave because I love him more than anyone else in the world. These are the stuff of daily lives. They're not biochemical reactions. They're not social codes. They're the way we make sense of our lives. And I think that therein lies the groundwork for both identity and a sense of integrity, a sense of value exploration, and a sense of true authenticity. Does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. But then, so that explains your meaning finding, but then explain to me why acting in like doing things that might be like complimentary or like, you know, maybe fulfill a hole in who we are actually can make us happier. That's how I interpreted your findings. Yeah. The best answer to that is that I found it really hard to explain that. And I thought Ian McGregor, who's a senior author on this and a, a really fine scholar who's now at the University of Waterloo, I think he did a great job in explaining it. I'm still puzzled by that finding. All I can say is that I invoke often, and I do in the book, the notion that it's not the pursuit of happiness, but the happiness of pursuit. And there can be happiness that emerges as a consequence of enacting challenging roles or projects that ask us to act out of character. And we say, wow, look what I'm doing. I'm standing in front of 400 students and they're loving it. Or I'm running a for public office. I've never done that before, but I'm, yeah, I'm happy I'm doing it. <laughs> oh, I'm just loving this conversation. I just have like a million questions I want to ask you. Uh, can I, I think we began this in Philadelphia a year ago. We really, we this conversation. I miss you. I'm like, yeah, I'm you sad that you're not, not in Philly anymore. So <laughs> we... You know, there's this constant tension between our drive for self-understanding and authenticity and right. our drive for personal growth. And they are, you know, they're compatible with each other. Um, Carl Rogers often talked about how once, you know, self once we accept ourselves, then we can truly, only then can we truly grow. And he talked about that in a lot of ways. But there's a balancing act. What is the right optimal balance there between like eventually just like, wanting what you have versus having what you want. So there's actually some interesting research kind of distinguishing between those things. And and ultimately, they say that the, the greatest predictor of happiness, I don't know if you saw this paper, um, mm -hmm. but they found the, the greatest predictor of happiness was being okay with like wanting what you have, like who yeah. you are, yeah. and growing along those lines as opposed to having an idealized self that really is so far away from who you are that you're like not happy with you who you are. I if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I think that when I talk about free trades, and the example I've used is introverts such as myself acting as pseudo extroverts, um, we talk about um, the downside of this, that it can lead to burnout and, and so on. But one thing that is really crucial that, that you raise is that it is a chance to expand yourself. And there's increasing evidence, as you know, because you're on top of the literature thoroughly, that there is increasing evidence that you can actually change genomic structures by social processes and, and the projects you engage in. If you are chronically lonely, that has an impact upon your biogenic self. When I began, 
What's that? Is that epigenetics? It's similar to epigenetics, indeed. And 10 years ago, even, I would have thought this was really, it sounds like Lamarckian. <laughs> and I would have thought that it was highly implausible. But increasingly, there's evidence of the interdigitation of the sociogenic and the biogenic. And I think part of what brings that interplay into effect is human action. The things you commit to, the projects you pursue, in which you have an interplay of your genetic propensity, the affordances provided by your environment, and there are consequences both downstream to your well-being and backstream to your relatively fixed traits. That is really exciting. That goes way beyond my competency to speculate on how that research might develop. But I know it's going on, and uh, it's, it's exciting. And these, you know, you, you say relatively fixed traits, but I really like the Fleeson model of density distributions, so personality yep. density, so that we all act out of character a lot throughout our day, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that we all are all through all five levels of, of yep. extroverts, introverts, all of those things, all yep. throughout our day. Um, yep. So in ways, it kind of confirms a lot of your a lot of your research that he just found that with experience sampling, I guess. Exactly, and you know, some of the time we'll have a conversation about the difference between experience sampling and personal projects because projects are subsume the kind of data that comes with experience sampling. But let me say a little bit about Will Fleeson and his work. I think it's terrific. And I'm very much in agreement with Will's work. I came at it from a slightly different perspective, but I've never really developed this thoroughly. I wrote about it in the Handbook of Environmental Psychology, or was it the Handbook of Personality Psychology, uh, Pervin's volume, the second edition of it? Somewhere I talked about Buss and Craig's model of the act frequency approach to dispositions, where they talked about dispositions as being the relative frequency of being engaged in acts that are prototypical in a Russian sense of each of the big five traits, for example. So in, during the day, you may engage in 16 acts that are quintessentially or prototypically extroverted and four that are introverted. And you look at, and I thought that act frequency, which is not unrelated at all to Will's work, was really quite brilliant. Jack Block attacked it. Uh, part of his attack was, I think, bang on, but unnecessary because it wasn't crucial to what David and Buss and Ken Creek were arguing. But I took a slightly different view, and this is where my George Kelly approach comes in. I developed what I call an, an act saliency view. It's not the acts that you engage in in terms of their frequency, but what you think you're doing that is really pivotal to understanding your personality. And the example I gave, it was an environmental handbook chapter. The example I gave is that you may see a fellow who spend all summer and deep into the autumn in uh, camping gear, going out to the lake, casting his fishing rod, chopping down trees, and generally acting in such a way as that we would call him a rustic warrior. And I actually pointed to some environmental disposition characteristics that he would be very high on. But we may be sadly mistaken. The reason he is engaged in those prototypical acts of the outdoorsman isn't because he's outdoorsy. It's not that he has a stable trait. It's that his wife is dying, and he loves her deeply, and she loves 
going into the woods. Uh This is their last chance to do that. Scott, this is, to me, what the human condition is about. You you, you can't just look at uh, at the prototypical acts, at the density distributions, and expect to engage fully with what a human being is. It offers us a terrific inroad, and it's necessary, but it's not sufficient for understanding what I think human personality is all about. I actually want to stop right there because I thought there's I, there's nothing I could possibly say that would be more profound than that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this chat, Brian, and um, everything you've done in your field. Wonderful questions. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.